From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Georgia is currently ranked third among states with most uninsured residents. More than 1.4 million Georgians were without insurance in 2018. This week, Governor Kemp announced the second of two health care waiver proposals to increase coverage. If approved, the waivers will allow the state of Georgia to remain compliant with the Federal Affordable Care Act, making changes to the health insurance market in the state without expanding Medicaid. Georgia is, by the way, currently one of 14 states that have chosen not to fully expand Medicaid. During his announcement of the Georgia's Georgia Pathways Plan on Monday, Governor Kemp addressed the current state of health insurance in the state. Right now, in Georgia, there are hundreds of thousands of Georgians who are working, training, or volunteering. They can't afford employer-sponsored health insurance. They can't afford a plan on the open market. They need coverage, but have run out of realistic options. Well, we want to better understand the impacts of the proposed waivers on the health and pocketbooks of Georgians across the state. Joining us is Ariel Hart, health reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And welcome back to Andy Miller. He is CEO and editor of Georgia Health News. Good morning, Andy. Good to be here. Okay, so the proposal came in two parts. The first, the Georgia Access Waiver aims to overhaul the individual exchange, creating a publicly funded reinsurance program, offsetting the cost of premiums. So, Andy, who stands to benefit from that proposal the most? Mostly, it's going to be people that have really high premiums in the health insurance exchange, uh, particularly in South Georgia, Southwest Georgia, who could be paying $1,000 a month on the individual market. And uh, what reinsurance will do is compensate insurers for really high-cost claims. And as a byproduct of that, the actual premiums will go down. I mean, the state thinks it could go down in South Georgia as much as $282 a month. Uh, Other states have done this. Uh, It's been successful in reducing the level of premiums that these people who don't have job-based coverage, who don't have government coverage – who are on the exchange. It's been successful in other states. So another prong of the proposal is having Georgians bypass healthcare.gov when purchasing coverage. Ariel, what would that mean for Georgians come the next enrollment period? That means that if you typed in healthcare.gov, you would be rerouted to a page that does not allow you to enroll yourself on the government website but gives you uh, private web brokers. And one of those, Health Sherpa, is uh, very well regarded by pretty much everyone, private, uh, nonprofit, et cetera. Others are varied in how people view them, whether they really serve the customer or not. So has that been tried in other states? I don't know of any state where that's been tried. And it's still an open question who else might be on the page that people are routed to. You know, there are these nonprofit navigators that help a lot of people in Georgia to enroll. And they, when I've asked if they're going to be on that page available to consumers, that's a question they haven't answered yet. All right. So that is the Georgia Access Program. The second proposal was announced this week, Georgia Pathways, which aims to help Georgians who have never had insurance. Andy, how, how will people qualify under this new program? Well, they'll have two incomes of less than 100% of the federal poverty level, which is roughly $12,000 a year uh, for an individual. But they'll have to go through several eligibility uh, markers. One is, the biggest one is the so-called work requirement, but it's not just work. To be eligible for this coverage, people will have to either work, job train, volunteer, or be in school at least 80 hours every month. 
and they will have to attest to that on a monthly basis. And those are the people that essentially will get the coverage. They'll also have to pay a premium on a sliding scale up to $11 a month. Work requirements have been stumbling blocks for healthcare problems in other states or solutions in other states. Ariel, what are the arguments for and against work requirements when it comes to expanding? Well, the argument for work requirements made by both the Trump administration and the Georgia officials who are advocating for them here is that work helps people and so that if you can encourage people to get a job or at least uh, engage in community um, activities, then that will lead them to a happier life. The phrase that the Kemp administration is using is lift them out of poverty. And the argument against is that the liberals, people who oppose this, uh, say that you've got it the other way around. Somebody who's bipolar and on the street, they need treatment first in order to you know, be able to get it together to shower regularly and then go get that job. So that is a question. How many people are able to meet that work requirement? It's very much a question. Yeah. So uh, how many Georgians are estimated to benefit from these changes by Georgia Pathways? The target population that the administration says is like 408,000 people who are uninsured under the poverty line, but they only estimate that it'll cover probably 50,000 people at any one time, and that's after it gets up and running. And I think the 50,000 number has drawn a lot of criticism, especially from Democrats who will say, look, if we expanded Medicaid, like 36 other states, we could cover 10 times as many people. Andy Miller there, CEO and editor of Georgia Health News. Also with us, Ariel Hart, health reporter for the AJC. We're discussing the two proposals from Governor Kemp aimed to improve health care coverage in Georgia. So what stands out when we look at the financial impacts of each of these proposals, the costs? Well, I, I, I think that uh, the reinsurance program will be roughly $100 million from the state and the Medicaid waiver part looks like about $35 million. Now, the state's going to ask the feds for a 90% match to add those folks to Medicaid, but the feds turned Utah down for that same request. And so it's likely that Georgia will only get 67% match. And so I think that that had a big impact on what the state eventually decided to do. Critics of the waiver process claim that full Medicaid expansion is the ideal solution. Governor Kemp, on the other hand, says that it is, quote, a great soundbite, but ultimately too expensive. So how do the proposed waivers compare to full Medicaid expansion? So a part of the question is hard to answer because there are going to be implementation costs associated with the work requirement that the Kemp administration says they don't know yet. They don't know how much time and money it's going to take to build a computer program that can figure out whether or not you have met the correct community engagement standard. And those are complicated. You can't just say, I mowed my neighbor's lawns 80 hours a month. You have to be um, with an approved community engagement program. So part of that's uh, not really a question you can answer yet. That said, the numbers they're giving us so far um, are a state contribution of $104 million a year for the higher income people and $36 million a year for the poor, the uh, Medicaid expansion. That's compared to, if you did full Medicaid expansion, estimates vary $200 million, $300 million a year from the state. When you look at the impacts to the number of people, full Medicaid expansion, you know, obviously would 
um, be several multiples of people more more covered. Who, who you know, I, sh- I should have asked you this. How about this work requirement? How does that affect people who are not necessarily on the books? Let's say a caregiver who's taking care of somebody who is, you know, mentally ill or um, has dementia, for example. Exactly. That's that's somebody who simply wouldn't be able to get Medicaid under this unless they could get an additional job. You know, figure out how to be free for twenty hours a week and get an additional job that would qualify. The waivers still need to be approved by the federal government. So what do we think? that Governor Kemp has a close relationship with the White House so far. What do you think that influence will have over the process? I mean, I, th- I think that they have a great relationship with both CMS, the part of the health department that will oversee this, and with the White House. Parts of this are going to move very quickly. Other parts are going to take some more time. There's a really um, innovative, uh, unique, different proposal to move the federal health care Obamacare exchange into state control. That, I think, is going to take a lot more time. Well, we did. Governor Kemp's announcement has sparked a lot of debate and across GBB social media. Bob Duval says the appearance of a solution is given while Georgians continue to go unserved. Expand Medicaid, Governor, for Georgia's sake. On the other side of the argument, Stephen Lee had this to say, since so many have a hard time understanding the concept of work ethic, you're mandated to learn it. This is a gift. Uh, Ariel, I know this is complicated stuff, but if we boil down the fundamentals of the debate over health care, what underlies? I mean, I think there's a real philosophical debate. You know, what does society owe you? Do we owe anybody health care? From the Republican point of view, there's a limited amount of money to go around and you don't just throw money at problems and you want to be fiscally conservative. And this is a way to get more people coverage. This will impact thousands of people. And this is a way to get more people coverage without tossing out the checkbook. From the liberal point of view, it doesn't go far enough uh, that um, there's this idea that, you know, people need to be healthy in order to be able to work. And that's kind of a baseline thing that government can give its people. Do these two proposals have to work together? I mean, could one be proved for other conceivably and the other be denied? That's It can happen that way. I think the Republicans, though, want to see them work in tandem. So if someone starts out getting help through Medicaid, they could potentially earn more money and get into the health insurance exchange and therefore kind of move up the continuum as their salary goes up. So that's how they see it. They see it as a pathway from poverty through full employment. Mm -hmm. The the mentality about health care, it seems to be changing. I mean, do Republicans despise Obamacare less now that it is working for a lot of people? And is that that what's making this waiver possible? You know, I I think the word Obamacare is never going to get a lot of love (laughs) in any, you know, in Republican circles. And I think a lot of people don't understand what Obamacare is. It's a vast law that affected a whole bunch of things that – make people's lives better and, you know, in some ways worse. But, you know, the, the polling that we have done has shown bipartisan support for the Affordable Care Act, for Medicaid expansion even. Um, our last poll showed that more than 70 percent of Georgians across the board supported full Medicaid expansion, including for the first time a majority of Republicans. Mm. But people also support work requirements. I think what the issue is, is when you get down into the details, there's a lot of misconception that, oh, if you're disabled, you'll be covered by disability. That's not necessarily true. Do we have a sense of how many Georgians are on disability now? I don't know that. Okay. Andy, you mentioned South Georgia. Impact rural Georgia, where hospitals and insurance options are often very scarce. Well, it 
the reinsurance part of it is expected to bring more competition in terms of insurance companies. There's there's more than 50 counties in our state that in the exchange only have one insurer to pick from if, if you're a consumer. So it's expected to help in terms of competition. It's expected to help in lowering premiums. But taking a look at what the hospitals are facing, the rural hospitals have a high level of uninsured, and this will help some. There will be some added coverage here, but it, it won't be like a silver bullet for a struggling rural hospital or even an urban safety net hospital. All right, so we're going to be watching the story unfold as the approval process continues. Andy Miller, CEO and editor of Georgia Health News, thank you. Good to be here. And Ariel Hart, AJC's health reporter, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Love to know what you think. Go to our Facebook group. Do you support the Medicaid waiver proposal? How would you like to see the state better address your health care needs? We're at GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We'll be back after a short break. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Allison Moore is a singer and songwriter. She's been nominated for an Academy, Grammy, Country Music Awards, and many more. She's just released her 11th album. It's called Blood, along with a companion memoir, also called Blood, and both tell a story that she's avoided talking about directly throughout her career. When Allison was 14 years old, her father killed her mother and then himself, leaving Moore and her sister, the singer Shelby Lynn, orphans. Allison Moore will be at Eddie's Attic in Atlanta on Friday for a discussion about the book and an acoustic performance. But first, we asked her why she decided to tell this story now, through music and prose. I decided to write a book um, as an indirect result of something that was said to me in the summer of 2010. My son was only six weeks old, and I was invited to be a guest on Maya Angelou's radio show. So while we were talking, she asked me about my childhood, and she uh, said, okay, well, now you have John Henry. When he's old enough to ask, what are you going to tell him? And I didn't have an answer for her. So for whatever reason, that put the idea of writing a book in my mind. With music, you have a lot more tools at your disposal. You have the actual melody, you have the chords, you've got instruments, you've got rhythm, you've got um, voice. With prose, you've got one thing, and, and that's the, the sentence, either the simplicity or the complexity of the sentence and rhythm. The similarities for me, you know, there's a rhythm to prose writing, which is very important. And having an instinct for how certain words fall and hit another human being's ear is an advantage too. So I feel like I brought those two things to the table from a songwriting background. The rest of it, I, I just had to learn as I went. I feel a big responsibility with this subject because my sister is directly involved. So I'm very aware of that and I, and I try to be really careful about not speaking for my sister, not putting words in her mouth. All I'm doing is saying what I saw.
My sister wrote the foreword for this book, and she has told me that because I did this work, because I, I created this, this, this piece of work, that she has been able to see her own experience in a different way. So that's a, a huge reward for me. I think one of the most damaging things about growing up in an abusive household or an addicted household is that, is that we as children are, are told very often, don't talk about this, don't say this is happening. And, um, you know, I was, I was told that when I was a child, don't talk about daddy's drinking, don't say anything about this, don't say anything about that. Nobody wanted to talk about the violence that was happening all around us. Nobody wanted to talk about the fact that my mama was had her life threatened. I think um, when you're asked to deny what you hear and what you see and, and m most importantly what you feel, I think you develop a distrust of your own emotions. I do think that it is a story of healing and what I'm getting back from the world is that this is somehow everyone's story. You know, we all have something that we're dragging around with us. So this is my story, but I feel like in a larger sense, everyone can find themselves in the story in some way. Um, I don't think there is a greater gift a person can give to themselves than forgiveness and grace extended. That is singer-songwriter Allison Moore. She's going to be at Eddie's Attic in Atlanta on Friday to play music from her new record, Blood, and to talk about the accompanying memoir with Kyle Jones of The Bitter Southerner. There's more information at gpbnews.org. You heard songs from the new record, including Cold, Cold Earth, The Rock and the Hill, and Nightlight, along with this one, made up of lyrics that Moore's sister found in their father's briefcase. It's called I'm the One to Blame. Georgia is among the top 11 states when it comes to prescription drug overdose deaths. President Trump declared the opioid crisis a national public health emergency in 2017. And earlier this year, state agencies received nearly $10 million in federal funding to expand access to medication-assisted treatment for opioid addiction and overdose. And while federal funding could help make a dent in adult dependency, Sesame Street aims to support children affected by parental addiction. Sesame Workshop, the nonprofit educational organization behind Sesame Street, recently not launched the initiative. Jeanette Betancourt is Sesame Workshop's senior vice president of U.S. Social Impact. She joins me on the line from New York City to talk about the new initiative that includes a new Muppet. Jeanette, hello. So glad that we've got you. But I want to talk about this. This is a, a fascinating subject. I know that this is Sesame Street has introduced various different characters through the years that have helped kids deal with, you know, homelessness, uh, more recently incarceration. But this is about the opioid addiction and the, cri uh, the opioid crisis, rather, and some of the kids that have fallen by the wayside. Looking here at data, one in three children entered foster care in 2017 because of parental drug abuse. 
This is the first time the show has ever addressed addiction. How did this idea develop at Sesame Workshop? Exactly because of the points you indicated, there are so many children, close to 6 million children under the age of 11 being impacted by parental addiction. And at the same time, we found that there were very little resources for young children explaining what was happening to their parent and also providing a sense of comfort and also indicating that they're not alone. Can you give us a little more backstory on this character, Carly? Who is she? Oh, yes. So Carly is a wonderful little girl. She's six and a half years old, and she lives near Sesame Street. And the way her her story began is that we, in May, launched her and her character from the point of view that she was in foster care, and she was with her foster parents, Clem and Dahlia, and we really indicated the focus on foster care and, again, gave guidance on explaining what foster care is. But most recently in October, we described and we extended her story on why she was placed in foster care, and it was due to her mother's uh, addiction. Her mommy is in recovery, and we explained, again, that transition into parental addiction and her background and her story Mm. as a result. Now, the episode with Carly did not air on the Sesame Street television show itself. It is online, however. Why did you make that decision to to air it online? Mm-hmm. Well, we have a long history through Sesame Street of always addressing tough topics. So from our very beginning, we've addressed the death of Mr. Hooper. We've addressed emergencies uh, such as hurricanes. But at the same time, when we began Sesame Street, we also had a very, very strong belief that we needed to not only be on programming, but engage in community engagement. In other words, go into communities. So what we do is both. We have our programming, and then for these tougher topics, we have an initiative and a model called Sesame Street and Communities, where it brings resources on the ground with national and local partners to integrate these resources effectively with providers who are servicing vulnerable families. So this is a continuation of the many topics we've addressed, whether it's divorce, incarceration of a parent, family homelessness, foster care, and now parental addiction. So walk me through the process your team goes through in choosing which issues to tackle. Oh, it's a very, it's, it's embedded in our core from the very beginning. We know that when we choose topics, we need to learn about those topics and we go through several stages. One, we start to highlight what is the presence in media and also in, in the literature of that topic, meaning is there research behind it? What are the demographics, particularly what is the impact on young children? And if it is something where we find there is significant impact, as with parental addiction with 6 million children, we then go into a different stage and hold what we call a key advisory. And there we bring experts from different perspectives who are not only informed about this topic, but also engaged in providing services. So yeah, so, so they're the people who might be talking Correct. to children directly. 
Right. Absolutely. Children and families directly. It's not just the academic knowledge. It is the on-the-ground knowledge. And from that, we create what we call a curriculum or a content framework and an implementation map, meaning we're learning what are the key points, what do we need to say to grown-ups, what do we need to say to young children, what do we need to say to those servicing them, and how do we integrate it into the many organizations and systems servicing children. And then we do lots of research. We create prototypes of these resources and test them out with different providers in different organizations, whether they're educators, health providers, social workers, child welfare, um, and then also parents and children experiencing this this topic or this issue. Uh, and, and then we create it. <laughs> and then you create it. And, and so I'm questioning how you figure out how the Muppets should look and sound and gender. Yeah. I mean, all of those decisions must be very, very intentional. It is very intentional. So we do make decisions on what is the characteristics we want of this wonderful, in this case, Carly, as a Muppet. We want to get the perspective of a child really in this situation, but also one that's showing resilience. So we look at her coloring, we look at her fur type, you look at, you know, her voicing, and then also who does the Muppeteering. So it really allows us to create and reflect what we see are generally children in these kinds of situations. Okay, I want to go through because this, these subjects, they're difficult, and they, they start dialogue between parents and caregivers and children. Here is one. This is about Elmo's dad, Louie, explaining to him what addiction is. How come Carly's mommy had to go away? Oh, well, son, uh, Carly's mommy has a kind of sickness, and she had to get some help. Sickness? Mm -hmm. oh, 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 like, like when Elmo has the sniffers? Oh, no, it's not that kind of sickness. Carly's mommy has a disease called addiction. Addiction makes people feel like they need a grown-up drink called alcohol or another kind of drug to feel okay. That can make a person act strange in ways they can't control. So there you go, uh, Louis, Elmo's dad, explaining to him the nature of addiction. And this, this takes away any sort of morality. This is not good or bad parent, but framing it as a sickness. So is that some kind of feedback that you got from the experts that you're working with on the ground? Oh, it was not only experts, but again, families themselves, yeah. whether they were directly impacted or those that were caregivers. Um, it is, again, a sickness. It's something that we need to address as it needs recovery. It needs a, a way to help in that sickness. And in this way, it's also reducing the stigma that we often associate with, with addiction. And we wanted that to be clear, not only for grown-ups, but for children as well. This month marks the 50th anniversary since Sesame Street first aired, uh, and its viewers have watched the show adapt to contemporary life in, in various different ways. Why do you think the show still resonates so deeply with people even decades after it first aired? Oh, because we are always listening, just as we described the process that we engage in with tough topics. That's what we do with all our programming. We're always listening and looking to how young children are learning, 
how their social emotional growth, their physical, uh, and their readiness for school. And that is what Sesame does. But at the same time, we're also current because we engage the adults. We're very aware of what is currently out there in media for, for adults as well who are parents. And we design our programming in that way. Especially now, it's going to be very exciting because November 9th, we will be celebrating and releasing a wonderful, wonderful new program on both HBO and PBS. Uh, it is a celebration, an anniversary celebration and special, uh, really bringing what we just described, uh, reminiscent of new versions of our songs, uh, as well as celebrities and some fun skits that are happening with our Muppets. Happy anniversary to Sesame Street. Jeanette Betancourt, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Jeanette is Sesame Workshop Senior Vice President of U.S. Social Impact. As you mentioned, Sesame Workshop partnered with GPB along with a select few other PBS stations to commemorate the 50th anniversary. It's part of an initiative for rural and underserved communities. Well, of course, we know what we're leaving you with, but this is from the NPR Tiny Desk Concert. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought in just a minute. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Voting in Georgia has remained a prickly subject since last year's midterm elections. The governor's race between Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp and Democrat Stacey Abrams was pitched as a battle over voting rights, and the election was steeped in allegations of voter suppression targeting minorities. Well, last week, the new Secretary of State released a list of 313,000 voter registrations that will soon be removed as part of federally required list maintenance. GPB's political reporter Stephen Fowler joins me in the studio to discuss why this move is raising eyebrows. Welcome, Stephen. Happy to be here. All right, let's hear what elections officials had to say about this. Here's Deputy Secretary of State Jordan Fuchs. So for perspective, the list that we released represents about 4% of the voter file. And this 4% is broken down into three different categories. All right, since we're going for accuracy, it's Jordan Fuchs, not Fuchs. So what are these three categories of registration set to be canceled? First, all of these are inactive voters. That means these are people that haven't voted, haven't had any sort of contact with elections officials for at least three years. One bucket of people moved away and never filled out some sort of follow-up card saying where they moved to. One chunk had election mail returned as undeliverable, and the last group is a bit controversial. They had no contact with elections officials for at least three years, uh, no voting, no anything like that. So the state says two of those are good signs that someone has indeed moved away and shouldn't be on the rolls, but we're talking about 4% of the voter rolls. Is that a sizable amount? So I talked to David Becker with the Center for Election Innovation and Research. He says 4% is a normal amount of people that could move in or out of a given area, and this list is really about the places where people move move a lot. Whether it's a difficulty keeping a voter record up to date, whether it's returned mail, whether it's problems at the polling places, uh, long lines, you're just going to see that in places where mobility is more prominent. So basically, Georgia has seven and a half million registered voters. It's signed up more than 350,000 in the last year. So it's not unreasonable to have this many inactive registrations uh, disappeared. How does Georgia stack up against other states in regards to list maintenance, as it's called. 
Well, Ohio made its list public this year, and they found a lot of people that shouldn't have been on it, but that's because they let each county run their own systems and own databases. Georgia has everything from the top down. Now, Becker says Georgia is doing a lot of things right. We have online voter registration, automatic voter registration, and we're part of something called ERIC, the Electronic Registration Information Center, that basically is an information sharing tool for states to know who's moving where and to keep their registrations accurate. If the state is following the law, then, and outside experts do say Georgia is a model example, where does the criticism come from? And so here's what Sarah Tyndall Gazelle with the Democratic Party of Georgia had to say. I think it is wrong and anti-democratic for voters to be disenfranchised, stripped of their right to vote, because they choose to not exercise their vote. So Gazelle says there are also plenty of problems with using things like no contact and the mail system. She showed me an absentee ballot that was mailed out for last year's election that just got returned a couple months ago as undeliverable with the correct address on there. But a new law this year does extend the time before somebody can become inactive and requires the state to send one final notice before they cancel a registration. But bottom line, Democrats and voting rights groups say there are plenty of ways a voter could be put on that list and not even know it. And ahead of next year's important elections for both parties, they say it could be disenfranchising predominantly minority and lower income voters. You have been looking at that list of names, checking to see if there are people on the list that do still live here and may wrongfully have their registrations canceled. What have you found so far? Well, so looking at the list, Virginia, mirrors the demographics of Georgia's population as a whole. Just over half of the list and half of the state are white. And about a third of the names on the list come from the big counties that have a third of the state's population. So and randomly looking at names, I found a couple people who had died, an old elementary school teacher of mine who had actually moved to Virginia, so he definitely doesn't live here, and some people who actually did not care that they were going to be removed from the rolls and had just no interest in voting. Well, besides your vigilance, I know this is going to be an ongoing story. GPB Stephen Fowler, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Now, Stephen filed a national story on the topic for NPR. You can hear it on the network's website and at gpbnews.org. And you can check the list of voter registrations set to be canceled. That is at our website, gpbnews.org. Each year, the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame inducts new members to its growing list of authors who've made significant literary contributions to the state. And this year, I will be at the annual ceremony to interview inductees John T. Edge and A.E. Stallings. That's on November 17th at the UGA Special Collections Library in Athens. Well, today we're speaking with Janice Ray, who was inducted into the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame in 2015. Her expansive body of creative works range from nonfiction to poetry to memoir, notably Ecology of a Cracker Childhood. A 15th anniversary edition of that book came out last year. Her work centers around deep love of nature, specifically the landscape of South Georgia. She grew up on a junkyard in Baxley, Georgia. And even though she opens her memoir with the statement that her homeland is about as ugly as a place gets, she's now a champion for ecological preservation of Georgia's southern forests. And joining me from Savannah today, Janice, welcome. Thank you so much. Virginia, thank you. Well, I want to pick up on that. Baxley in South Georgia, about as ugly as a place gets, unless you look close, there's Mm -hmm. little majesty. You were looking close, practically living outside, half wild, I think your mother called you. Where did you find its majesty? Well, in the, you know, in my childhood, I found it in things like trees and the little clump of, of pitcher plant down in the junkyard. 
But, of course, when I could get away and look back, I, I saw more of it. And I was really grown up before I could see that we had this amazing ecosystem that covered the coastal plains of the South that more or less had been destroyed. So that, I mean... There, there are majesty other places. I think there's majesty in our, you know, in our communities and our people and our cultures. But, but in this case, tremendous majesty in longleaf pine forests. And you use in that memoir, and in, I think in your poetry, you use your family story to tell a larger story about, about the uniqueness of this southern forest in Georgia, specifically the longleaf pine. What is it about, unique about this tree for you? Um, so this tree has built so much of our region and our country. It's built, you know, very famous buildings, very famous bridges, including the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, when you, it also, it also engendered an entire culture that sprang up in it. So let me just tell you that it, it, it has an incredible diversity, but the diversity is not in the tree. It's mainly this one species of longleaf pine that has a super interesting natural history. And then all these other uh, species, most of which are threatened and endangered, like gopher tortoise, red cockaded woodpecker, Bachman sparrow. So when you deconstruct it, it's it's just a fabulous place. And at first glance, you would just see swaths, you know, green swards mm-hmm. of one kind of pine, like entirely monotonous, but it's not that at all. And that just so captured my imagination when I got old enough to realize that there was just this treasure chest around me that I hadn't paid close enough attention to as a child. And you deeply explore that, both the ecology and the economy that and, and the history of the region that you grew up in and the state of the forest today. I'm thinking there are plenty of other places in the country that have preserved the beauty of their natural landscapes. You think of the American West and the national parks and protected areas. So in your view, why haven't we protected the natural beauty of the South? Oh, gosh, Virginia, we're in deep water now, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, there are just so many tensions that are inherent in the South. And some of it I blame on, you know, this the group of privileged people who accepted slavery, refused to change, and sort of made it, I mean, I hate to use incendiary language, but kind of made us a colony, made the South a colony. Um, we were also going through lots of development before the movement of the landscape painters who were able to show those gorgeous vistas of the West. So, you know, lots of reasons, some, some just industrial in nature and, and some just a fact of us being culturally behind. Well, this is an identification that you make, the, 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 the quote, cracker identity, the culture and heritage of people who came from Britain to settle in the American South. Uh, but you also write of their relationship to the longleaf pine. Our, our, our legacy is ruination. You were just talking about that. Mm-hmm. What's it like to hold both of those identities so closely? One of, of, of loss and, as you put it, colonization. And also, you know, an identity of joy and ident- and and familiarity. Well, I would say, 
you know, 40 years ago, when I was a child, it was so much easier to do that because I could see so freshly the beauties and joys of of my culture, this this thing I grew up in. But as time has passed and as there has been a distillation of elements that aren't so supportable, I'm honestly having a harder time with that. And, you know, we could go very far into that, but I think, I think we can just end it there. It's, it's, we have both and, and yet if we continue to lose our best and brightest children to urban areas, to areas other than the American South, um, what is left here is a kind of fundamentalism that isn't pretty. Well, Always. Fun- fundamentalism was you, you grew up in a very strict brand of it. You didn't even celebrate holidays or birthdays. What, what was the natural world in that kind of belief system? Um, we were mostly inside. I think that's where your question is going. So the natural world pretty much didn't exist in that kind of ecosystem. Um, it took me getting away to find it. And, and I also did have portions of it, pieces of it. And that would be when I could escape down into the junkyard as a child with my brothers or without them and climb a tree or, Mm. or find, you know, some bit of beauty. And I continue to believe that no matter our circumstances, that nature offers us that. But, and my abiding hope for my work, for this book, for, for our lives is that we all learn to look at, at nature and that we learn to honor it, to give it rights, to live more sustainably on this, you know, beautiful, heartbreaking planet we live on. Hmm. You, you, I think, rebelled, it's safe to say, became a bit of a hippie uh, after you left your home. But this term, cracker, this is both insult and term of endearment, depending on who's using it. And, and as time has passed, there's different kind of sensitivities to it. What kind of feedback have you gotten from embracing and using that term? That's so funny. Uh, what, what, what's funny? It, well, almost immediately, the first reading I did, somebody in the back stood up and asked what I meant by the word cracker. It, <laughs> it's just, you know, it has such racial overtones and so forth. And I, I'm, I'm not sad that I used it. I think it does. I, I want to believe that it means a poor, a poor Southerner and that, uh, you know, I was the first generation in my extended family to go to college and so when people like me finally got to college we were given the tools to write about our lives and so i'm part of this uh, great cadre of memoirs like mary carr Mm -hmm. and, and so forth who sprang up so um i can't say that i would write that term differently if i were to do this again but it has been a question that I've had to answer over and over. What do I mean? In this case, I mean it to be like hillbilly would mean to a person from a mountainous region, just a flatlander who's poor. And in terms of could it be white? Could could a cracker be white? Could a cracker be black? I personally think, you know, could be all of that. Well, there is a chapter in your memoir that speaks to how we deal with shame and write that even though you struggled with your identity as a Southerner, you chose to honor that part of yourself in your writing, even sometimes writing specifically in a Southern dialect. What, would, what was it like to, 
to write the way you speak? I mean, did it feel wrong according to any writing teacher or did it just feel natural? Well, it certainly felt wrong to my editors. I I got some wonderful, you know, copy edits back there. You know, you just cannot use the word fixing to say (laughs) I'm I'm fixing to go make a cup of coffee here. So that was that was a a trip. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how do you see the role of writing and art more generally in bringing attention to 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 that majesty and the changing face of Georgia's forests? Oh, gosh, Virginia, I have been sitting here trying to think of the perfect metaphor for books and art. Mm-hmm. They have just meant so much to me. And I know to you, too. I think I was thinking here, they're soil, you know, they're the humus. They're all these stories that we collect to explain life in a place, to, you know, to give meaning to our lives, to try to understand these circumstances we were put in. But they're also our bedrock, you know, they're mirrors back to us. They're basically suns, you know, they're just burning us up, these books. I, I am, I, I am a, uh, oh gosh, a book lover of, the deepest degree, I believe so fully in books, books as artifactual and as, as transformers. And, and uh, I'm so glad, too, that books, which were portals in my childhood, there were portals for me to see all the possibilities of this glorious world, and that I, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to return that if possible And um, I'm so grateful that this life has allowed me to do that. And you've been well rewarded for it. Uh, Recognition from the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame, among others. We have just a half a minute, so it's unfair for me to ask you this, but you've agitated so much for change in Georgia's longleaf pine forest. Not a lot has. How does that affect you on a personal level? Um. Longleaf is coming back. There are many government programs that are assisting that. And um, I have great hope for it. So I, I also know that we're in the middle of another cutting cycle, although these cuts don't, these logging episodes don't seem like cycles to me. They seem like one long wound that just goes deeper and deeper into the soul of, of, the, of the Southerner. Janice Ray, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. A pleasure. I can't wait to meet you, Virginia. (laughs) Janice Ray, she's an author and environmentalist from Baxley, Georgia. You can find much more about her work at gpbnews.org. And you can join the conversation in our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Who do you think should be in the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame? Leave us your comment on our Facebook page. That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for your attention, for your listening today with On Second Thought. Be back tomorrow.